And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. All right, everybody, what's up? And welcome in to the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Wednesday, July 14th, Derek Van Riper and Michael Beller here with you. Of course, we're presented as we are all season long by Tops. Check out Tops Project 70, celebrating 70 years of Tops Baseball Cards DVR. This is the uh, one day, the literal one day of the year between opening day and and whatever the last day of the season is, October 3rd, something like that, whatever that Sunday is, uh, without baseball, without any MLB action whatsoever. We had the home run derby on Monday, the All-Star game yesterday. We've got the Yankees and the Red Sox kicking us off tomorrow. So today's the day. No baseball. I mean, what what are you doing? How are you filling the void? Um, by talking about baseball. That's my <laughs> that's my hack. That's my secret to do uh, multiple baseball podcasts in the same day. That's the, the solution for me. When there is no baseball, make baseball chatter. There you go, and that's exactly what we're going to do here for the next, I don't know, 40 minutes or so, looking ahead to the second half of the season. That's what DVR and I wanted to tackle on this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. Talking about players that, for whatever reason, one or both of us found just interesting to discuss and to think about, and guys that we're going to be watching closely as the second half begins. So, Let's not beat the let's not beat around the bush anymore here, DVR. Let's just get right into it. One of the guys that you wanted us to get into was Gavin Lux, and it was not the greatest first half for Gavin Lux. He goes into the All Star break hitting 231, 314, 358 in 303 plate appearances, six homers, three steals. He's drawn walks at a 10% rate. He's striking out 23.4% of the time. Everyone, I think, agrees that Gavin Lux eventually is going to be the guy that we expect him to be. I think a lot of people would have started. We thought we were going to start seeing that earlier on this season. What are you looking for with Gavin Lux as the second half begins? So you already know the answer to this, but the listeners don't. (laughs) Who has more career big league plate appearances, Gavin Lux or Dylan Carlson? And the answer is Carlson. Carlson has been slightly more productive in those opportunities. Both are under 500 career plate appearances. I think it's because we saw Lux debut at the end of 2019. It somehow feels like he's a bigger disappointment, that he's been around just a little bit longer uh, by the way uh, time works. Yes, he has been around for a slightly longer period of time, but the actual experience he has is a tick less. So we've seen a little bit of power. We've seen a little bit of speed, and we've seen a guy who's improved his plate skills this season. And I think that's really one key for me. We're not getting hard hits. We're not getting barrels. We're not getting some of the underlying things that we want at as much of an elevated clip as we would like. But we do have an increased hard hit rate, even though the barrel rate's not up. A 41.7% hard hit rate for Gavin Lux this season is up a lot from where he was in the shortened season. He was at 27.3% last year. The max exit velocity is okay. The average exit velocity now sitting at 90 I think there's still more good than bad in this profile. I think the 
question that I keep wrestling with with Gavin Lux is, once Corey Seager is healthy, as the Dodgers make moves at the end of the month to shore up their roster, clearly they're going to be among the teams trying to get better at the trade deadline. Is he still going to have a spot to call his own every single day? Or is he going to slip back into maybe a 75 or 80% playing time share? And I wonder how important these next couple of weeks are coming out of the break uh, are for him to show the Dodgers some further improvement, to show them that, yeah, he he is ready. He is good enough to be in that starting nine each and every day. I mean, they've got Chris Taylor playing exceptionally well. They've finally got a, co- a healthy Cody Bellinger. So they just have a lot more flexibility on this roster already than they had during the first half. And once you have a healthy Seager, that goes up even further. Yeah, I think that's really, <clears throat> excuse me, the concern here. I guess in in a perfect world, you have Seager playing short, you slide, uh, you slide Lux over to second, you slide Chris Taylor into the outfield, and it's like AJ Pollock maybe who loses a decent amount of playing time, and so you're looking at you know uh, uh, Lux and Seager and uh, and Chris Taylor and Justin Turner and Bellinger and Mookie and Max Muncie as your as your everyday players. I do think Lux is going to have to hit a little bit more to to justify that, and this is a team that is going to use its flexibility no matter what. So I don't know if pure everyday player is in the cards for Gavin Lux once Corey Seager's healthy. I think he probably will cede some time to A.J. Pollock, to Zach McKinstry, you know, the way that this team just figures things out and pieces things together. He obviously hasn't put himself in that everyday, no doubt about it, class of players for this team just yet. But I do think there's good reason to to, uh, be encouraged with him going into the second half. So it's going to be an interesting couple of weeks for him before Corey Seager is on the field. I mean, I do think... I do think there's a, there's a there's a non-zero chance that he plays well enough in the first couple of weeks of the second half that he does play his way into being a uh, second-half everyday guy. He just needs to hit right away from the beginning of the second half of the season. Right, and I think Lux and Carlson, and there are other players like this too, maybe Gleyber Torres fits into this conversation, they're young enough where you could see big steps forward. We've already seen Torres reach a high level, but with Carlson and Lux, if you are in a position where you're middle of the pack in the standings. It's going to take a lot of things going right for you to finish in the money or to possibly win the league this year. You need to, in redraft leagues, take a chance on guys that have not reached that level before. Mm. So I do think he's he's a good target. We talked to Ariel Cohen a couple of weeks ago on Under the Radar. Where you're at in the standings kind of dictates the types of players you're trading for this time of year. I think in keeper and dynasty leagues, if you're playing for the future, you might have teams that are contending right now that are more willing to move Someone like Gavin Lux, this would be a great yep. time to trade for him because Seager's a free agent at the end of the season. If Seager leaves, Lux could have a spot to call his own again next season and maybe not having to look over his shoulder and worry about playing time at all entering the year. Maybe that will change things for him too because I thought coming to the year, I thought he could be this year's Kyle Tucker. Obviously, I've been wrong about that. It has <laughs> not happened yet, but I still think there's a, a long-term profile here that I'd like to buy into. I still want to believe in the scouting grades, that there is above-average power and above-average hit tool that will eventually develop against top-level pitching. It's just a question of whether it happens over the course of these next two and a half months or if we have to still wait maybe another year before it plays out. 
yeah, worth considering also on top of what you said right off the top that he has fewer plate appearances in the majors than Dylan Carlson. We're talking about a 23-year-old guy, so still definitely going to trust the talent right now over some of the numbers we've seen given just what the pedigree is, what the age is, what the overall playing time at the major league level is. All of that still very, very early, very, very young for Gavin Lux. Next guy we're going to talk about here is Luis Castillo, and it was a tale of two halves for Luis Castillo. Dreadful to start the season. First 11 starts of the year were just terrible, and that's really what's still driving the full season stats to this point of the season. That's what's behind the 4.65 ERA, the 1.41 whip. Uh, the XERA is down at 4.02, and I think a lot of that comes from what he did over the last eight starts of the first half. In those eight starts leading up to the All-Star break, he had a 1.97 ERA, a 1.03 whip, 48 Ks, and 11 walks in 50 and one-thirds innings. And another big change for Luis Castillo that has me feeling pretty good about him in the second half. In those first 11 starts, he had a home run problem. He allowed eight homers. In those last eight, he allowed two. And so it feels as though... Over that time period, we're getting back to the Luis Castillo we expected to see really from the jump this season. And the one thing that maybe stands out to me as a slight negative for him are the strikeouts. Luis Castillo is someone who we've always counted on as you know comfortably more than a strikeout per inning sort of pitcher. That hasn't been there for him this season. And even in that great stretch of eight stars, 48 Ks and 50 in a third inning. So just slightly below that strikeout per inning number that we uh, typically look for as almost like a baseline for fantasy elite status. You want at least that. Really, you want something more like 1.3 or 1.5 Ks per inning. But you know what we're looking for is at least that one strikeout per inning, and he hasn't quite hit that, but I think that the more important numbers are there and bearing out that he can be that type of pitcher for the second half of the season, and so someone who I am very interested in, I think the I think it might be hard to go out and acquire him because of what he did to close out the first half. Anyone who stuck with him through those first two months probably isn't super keen on trading him after what he did over the second half of the season, second half of the first half. But I think it's a discussion that's at least worth engaging in because I do think we're going to see him be that brand of pitcher over the second half of the season. Yeah, I'm thinking back to my final set of rankings before the season. I think Castillo was pretty safely. If he wasn't in the top ten, he was very close. He wouldn't have been any lower than about. 12th on that list of starting pitchers, I think I probably had him overranked just based on the fact that we're still seeing an elevated walk rate. I think some of the Ks mm-hmm. are coming back. The swinging strike rate is still good, even if it's not at the level we've seen in the past. So if we said, let's split the difference between the 8.5 Ks per nine we're getting this season and the 10 plus we were getting in 2019, that's about 9 Ks, 9.5 Ks per nine going forward. I think a slightly elevated walk rate is a skill problem that he legitimately has to correct. I don't think that's going away quickly, so you have to bake that in. I think it's important to point out that the home run rate has come down. I think it's also important to point out that the velocity early in the season was down a tick, but he's been up since May, and he's stayed at that level over the last three months. So it does seem like Castillo has really figured it out after that early Mm -hmm. tailspin, and I think the projections are a really good guide in this particular case because you're talking about a guy that has a high threes ERA from all the projection systems, I think Steamer at 368 is the most optimistic, very consistent whip in the high 120 range, and just over a strikeout per inning going forward. I think if you expect that, you probably won't be disappointed. There's a chance he'll be a little bit better, 
And I think the Reds are an interesting team in these next couple of weeks. Yeah. They have a huge series against the Brewers to start the second half. They took three of four from Milwaukee on the road going into the break. They've won eight out of their last ten. They might be the only other team in that division right now who can actually win the NL Central based on where things stand today. They could be adding things. They could be adding more to that bullpen to help protect leads. So the team context around Castillo could actually get a little bit better down the stretch as well. So I'm I'm comfortable with him as more of a, a really good SP2, and I think I'd previously mislabeled him as a fantasy ace. Four games behind the Brewers to start the second half of the season. You mentioned that big three-gamer in Cincinnati to kick off the second half. They take two out of three, and now you're talking three games back halfway through July. I think they're pretty firmly buyers. If they drop two out of three or get swept, maybe they discuss things and maybe they don't quite go in. But if they do go in and if they are going after bullpen guys, I mean, we know that Lucas Sims on the IL, TJ Antone on the IL, Amir Garrett has struggled. Basically everyone at the back end of that bullpen, Brad Brock, he has struggled uh, at times. It's been uh, a bullpen that really has been in flux all season long. And so if they can strengthen that bullpen, maybe we can see some increasing win upside for Luis Castillo. A huge, huge series. Probably the biggest series uh, to start the second half going down between the Brewers and the Reds in Cincinnati. And hey, someone else who's going to be in that series, Christian Yelich. I mean, I just can't explain this. You've got a Brewers hat on. Can you try to explain this? I, I, I don't know if I've ever seen such a spread through, what, 300-whatever plate appearances that we have, 238 plate appearances for Christian Yelich in OBP and slugging percentage. A 399 OBP, but a 369 slugging percentage. I mean, where has the power gone? I guess where have the fly balls gone? It's like he's back to his Marlins days hitting everything on the ground. Yeah, I guess 2019 was the outlier for him in terms of ground ball rate because even in 2018, when a lot of that production came in the second half of the season— he finished that year with a 51.8% ground ball rate, and he hit 36 home runs that year and <laughs> did a ton of damage. So it's a strange profile in that regard. Maybe he is one of those guys that, despite his ability to hit home runs, when he's not launching the ball, he's just pounding it to the ground more than you'd expect. Weird profile for sure. That the play discipline in terms of the high walk rate is still there, that at least gives me a little bit of confidence that it's not necessarily like a pitch recognition problem or that hitters or pitchers have found a complete hole in his approach. But what does concern me is that the K rate has stayed up. In the last year, he was at 30.8%. This year, he's at 27.7%. So normally when Yelich is playing well, he's closer to 20% with his K rate. That was where he was for most of his time in Miami, and that was where he was for his first two seasons in Milwaukee. I, I think last season when I watched him, it felt like he just wasn't comfortable on his knee or maybe he was still dealing with some back issues. He physically just did not look like himself. That isn't necessarily how I feel when I watch him right now. He doesn't look like it's a, an ailment, at least not a visible one, that's hampering him right now. It's one of the bigger mysteries in fantasy right now. You dig in the underlying numbers and you, know, you find good stat cast numbers, but not the elite numbers that we were seeing, again, during that MVP run. I think it's a question of, do you trust him to bounce back to the projections, even if those are pretty far below what he was doing in 18 and 19? Because if, if he does what the Bat-X forecasts, it's a 272 average, it's a 387 OBP, it's a 498 slugging percentage. A dozen home runs the rest of the way, seven steals, good run production, good lineup. If he does that, that's a very good player. That's an early rounder, but it's definitely not a guy who was at the top of the board you know, just two years ago. 
Yeah, and, but I, anyone would take that. Anyone would buy right into those projections if they could buy into them right now. And I do think that he's his story. His his second half is going to um, be really definitive in the fantasy world and the real life world. It's going to be crucial to can the Brewers hold on in the NL Central. Crucial to can the Brewers be a real player in the playoffs should they get there. We know that that rotation is going to have them among the most dangerous teams in the postseason should they get there, but they're going to need a little bit more offense, and it's going to have to come, I think, chiefly from someone like Christian Yelich, and then what sort of fantasy player is he going to be? It's all working together to make him, I think, one of the most interesting guys to look at in the second half of this uh, MLB season. So it just, I mean, there's really no explain. Like it, it's, it, everything you say makes sense. I think it's just very, it's very, very hard to explain to put a finger on why Christian Yelich, seemingly removed from the knee injury, is having this type of season. It just hasn't found the power, and maybe we'll figure something out with him in the second half of the season. Uh, The next guy who I want to move on to is Carlos Correa DVR. And Carlos Correa is sort of the opposite of uh, of Christian Yelich. He seems to finally be having the season that we've been waiting for him to have. We have had years where he stayed healthy but just hasn't quite gotten to the level of production we expect him to have. We have had other years where he's been doing that level of production on a per-game basis but hasn't been able to stay healthy all year. This year, everything seems to be being put together. 288, 385, 510 on the slash line. 16 homers and 358 plate appearances. And what I love DVR is that if you go to his uh, Savant page and you check out those StatCast numbers, everything, everything is some shade of red. Some of them are deep red. Some of them are a little bit more uh, mild red. But everything is some shade of red for Carlos Correa on that StatCast page. And this is what we this is what we expect him to be. When he first came up, this is the sort of player we thought he was going to be. We thought he was going to be a year in, year out MVP candidate. It hasn't quite borne out like that, uh, but now we're seeing it. And another guy who it's maybe hard to remember, still just 26 years old. So maybe there were just a few more kinks that needed to be worked out. Now as he has gotten himself into his physical prime, it seems like that MVP caliber level, he's not going to be the MVP this year, but that MVP caliber level of play is shining through for him. Yeah, I've said this a few times in the last couple of weeks, but the Astros are really good, like it or not. No matter what you think of that team, <laughs> yes. they are really good. They're in a class of their own in terms of what they're doing offensively as a yeah. team. Correa is part of the reason why, but with so much quality up and down the lineup with the sort of bounce back season that Altuve has had as well, that run production you're getting from a guy like Correa is also just a notch above what you're getting from most other players in the pool. I think I've wondered for a long time how much of the struggles of Carlos Correa were injuries and trying to play through injuries. I think mm-hmm. we probably overrated him when he first broke into the league. It was pretty clear a couple of years ago speed wasn't going to be a part of the profile anymore. This is closer to the expectations that I think I was trying to carry for him on a per-game basis. The question now is, does he hold up in the second half? Does he get to 600 plate appearances this year? If he does, he probably pops 30 home runs and you know threatens 100 runs and 100 RBIs pretty easily. Probably crosses over that before we get to even the second week of September because that's, again, that's how good they are. So I'm generally buying in on the skills. I'm just trying to figure out how likely it is that he's actually on the field for that full playing time share over the final two and a half months. 
Yeah, the um, the the projections on him uh, all are you know pretty similar. You've got a batting average that ranges anywhere from uh, two sixty five up to zips has him at two eighty one. You've got a uh, OBP that's sitting in the three forty seven to three sixty six range. Most of the slugging percentages coming in south of five hundred. Zips a little bit more um, uh, optimistic on him at exactly a five hundred slugging percentage and. I don't know. I feel like those projections by their nature are always going to um, maybe not project a breakout, right? I mean, that's just not how projections work, really. They have to lean on the past and lean on history, lean on a player's track record. I think these ones, a little bit too much for me, ignore not only what he's done this season, but also what the underlying numbers say and what the underlying numbers for him are with all those stat cast numbers being in the red with the fact that the walk rate this season is up to a career high 13.1 and his strikeout rate down to a career low 17.6%. I mean, he just seems in really all manner like a different hitter this season. And so I buy him being able to stay as a 288, 385, 510 brand of hitter so long as he stays healthy. For me, the only question with Carlos Correa is health. I don't think there's any significant regression risk with him. Yeah, and I think 2019 was a pretty good indication of this on a per-game basis. He only played 75 games that year, but he hit 21 homers, 59 RBIs, 42 runs scored that year. It was a half season. Like Just double that up, 150 games that year, he could have hit 40 homers and driven in 120 runs on that sort of pace. The plate skills being as good as they've ever been, I, that's the other little area where I'd say, is that exactly who he is? I don't think he's going to fall apart because he's always done a good job mm-hmm. drawing walks. But if the K rate got back up closer to 20% the rest of the way and the walk rate was closer to 10%, he'd still be very good. If you knocked yeah. 15 points off the batting average and maybe 20 points off the OBP but kept the power, that's still a really good player. And especially where he was going back in March, a guy that's probably going to be on quite a few rosters that finish in the money this year. Yeah, probably a guy who we could have considered, if not for Marcus Semyon, as a a return on investment champ, and we were talking about that on last week's episode. Another guy who's provided a huge return on investment is the next guy we talk about. You say Kikuchi, uh, he's good. Carlos Correa, we should mention, uh, while we're here, uh, on the COVID IL IL right now, but doesn't seem like it's going to be anything that drags on too deep into the second half. You say Kikuchi was activated off of that just before the end of the first half of the season, and it's been... Uh, another guy who, right, it's like it took a little bit of time, but we're seeing the Yusei Kikuchi uh, that uh, so many people were excited about when he first came over to the majors. A 3.48 ERA, a 1.09 whip, 25% K rate, 8.7% walk rate through the first half of the season. The XERA is up at 4.31, but Yusei Kikuchi still looking like, I think, a real good guy for the second half of the season. This was one of your guys. What has you interested in him going into the second half? So he was one of those guys that uh, people I trust were into, and I really wasn't into him back during draft season. So I ended up with him in tout war, sort of just listening to my friends, essentially, and saying <laughs> they see something in Kikuchi that they believe is is a lot better. Velocity was up this spring. That was obviously yeah. a, a big part of it, but it, it wasn't just that. There was, there was growth in the shortened season from him that was easy to see in the underlying numbers, but the surface numbers, the ERA in particular, wasn't good in the shortened season from Kikuchi, so it was very easy to write him off. I think it's just more of a question for me. It's like, where do we go from here? Because the ERA right now is quite a bit better than the FIP. And is he going to regress in the direction of the FIP and the projection? Or is he able to continue making adjustments 
uh, hold that increased K rate that we saw from last year and possibly even lower the walk rate a little further and reach a new level. The projections are generally pessimistic because his first two seasons in the big leagues had such poor results. But I think they don't tell a full story here. I think the, the complications, of course, are previously he was pitching in Japan. And I don't know how much of that information is perfectly translated into the projections that we look at. So I'm erring on the side of being more optimistic than the projections. I'm just trying to figure out how much more optimistic. Are we talking steamer, like 377, 126 mm -hmm. for the ratios? Are we talking maybe low fours and a 130 whip with a lot of Ks the rest of the way? Like, I don't really know where to draw those lines. I think he's good enough to continue to be rostered in pretty much all mixed leagues. He's going to be active in just about all matchups. I think the only matchup that I would consistently sit him down in right now would be matchups against the Astros. Otherwise, I would throw him out there against just about anybody else. Maybe if you had some interleague matchup in Colorado or something, I wouldn't want to throw him there, of course. But even Colorado, because their offense yeah. has been so bad, you have to at least <laughs> right. think about it. So he's almost at the point where I trust him in all matchups. I'm just wondering if that is um, appropriate, an appropriate amount of trust to have in him based on what we've seen here in about 100 innings this season. I think it is. I think that... I tend to be a little bit more aggressive uh, when it comes to starting guys, but I just feel like you say Kikuchi is not someone you have on your team to use occasionally. I understand wanting to sit him down against the Astros because they're just crushing everyone, but he's not the sort of guy who I really worry about matchup too much with. If you're worried about matchup with you say Kikuchi, I feel like why, why is he on your team? Why do you keep a guy like that? around it just doesn't it doesn't add up for me so I think I would play I, I could get on board with benching him against the Astros I'm playing him against pretty much everyone else and what's interesting to me too DVR is that a lot of times we look for some sort of substantive uh, change in a guy when he makes the sort of leap that Kikuchi has this season in terms of pitch mix and pitch usage and nothing has really changed significantly for Kikuchi this season compared with last season. He's still throwing the cutter 40% of the time. He is throwing the four-seamer less, but not to the extent that we could point to that as a major difference, especially when you consider that the slider and the changeup have both ticked up a little bit in about the same amount of percentage points. So it's like half of the four-seamer has gone to the slider, half of the four-seamer has gone to the changeup. There's really nothing there that we can point to and say, he's got this new pitch, that's what's doing it for him, or... <clears throat> excuse me, the way he's mixing his pitches is different. That's what's doing it for him. It just seems like everything's a little bit finer tuned and that he's just a little bit better of a pitcher. This guy out here outside my window honking to say, yeah, you say Kikuchi is just a little bit better of a pitcher this season. You're right, Mike. You're right, Derek. Good call on that. Someone who you're definitely going to be watching here in the second half of the season. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Claim based on total games carried on sports networks. Sports availability varies by zip code and requires choice package. Terms and restrictions apply. And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. Hey, Frank, a little birdie told me you don't need a satellite dish to get DirecTV. What's little birdie? Was it Jimmy the Sparrow? It's a figure of speech. Point is, you can stream DirecTV over the internet now. Oh, sure. Next you're going to tell me those big birds are made of metal and filled with people, right? <laughs> you mean airplanes? Stream DirecTV without a satellite dish. Call 1-800-DIRECTV. Terms or restrictions apply.
All right, DVR, let's get back into our player discussion here. I'm going to take us back to Houston because I am absolutely just, I don't know if obsessed is the right word with Luis Garcia, but I love what we've seen from him. And you know, one of the things that we, uh, we knew when he got put into the rotation is that this was a team that had a very deep rotation. Seven guys who can easily fill in that rotation. And some of those guys are better than others. Some of those guys are younger than others. Some of those guys have checkered histories. And so all that added up to say that all of these guys are probably going to get a chance to start a bit this season. And we can't exactly uh, feel out who other than, you know, Zach Grinke's healthy, Zach Grinke's a starter. Right, that goes without saying. Lance McCullers is healthy. Lance McCullers is a starter. But some of these other guys, you know, is like, are they going to be in the rotation? Are they going to be in the bullpen? Are they going to bounce back and forth? Are they going to try to manage innings? And Luis Garcia, when I look at him, I see a guy who has locked himself into this rotation with what he did in the first half of the season. A 306 ERA, a 110 whip, 28% K rate, 8.4% walk rate. The 3.39 XERA makes me feel good that he is earning this and the stuff is playing even though he's not an extreme velocity guy I mean he's not out there Kyle Hendrickson around but he's not an extreme velocity 97 98 blow you away sort of guy and the stuff is still playing and so that has me feeling very good about him remaining in this rotation throughout the season so I'm gonna go right to the Eno and Max Bay stuff plus numbers here because they're really impressive for Luis Garcia he has a slider, a changeup, and a cutter that are all above-average pitchers based on the Stuff Plus metrics. All of those pitches have at least average-ish command. The slider is actually above-average for Location Plus. So it, it, it's three above-average offerings, command of all of them, a fastball that's not terrible, and a curveball that is usable even though it's not as good as the other pitches. I mean, this is a really deep arsenal, a guy that can locate where he wants to, a great story just in terms of a guy that jumped up multiple levels to debut last season, didn't have a spot in the rotation to begin the season, has claimed one and isn't looking back. I mean, he looks like a fixture for a long time. I, I liked Jose Urquidy coming into the season. He's been uh, dealing with multiple injuries this year. So, you know, we'll see if we get him back. But Garcia is doing everything I had hoped Urquidy would do. And fortunately, because I had so much Urquidy, I had to go after Garcia when Urquidy <laughs> wasn't available. And I like Garcia as a flyer going back into draft season. So this is one of the, the handful of, of later pitching breakouts that I've had in multiple places. And I'm really excited when I look at those underlying numbers that it doesn't look like it's all going to completely fall apart. Now, I don't I don't know if we can expect a 306 ERA and a 110 whip going forward. But if he's a mid-threes guy with a 120s whip and plenty of Ks, you're still really happy based on what it took to get him earlier this season. And it was crazy. Just a few years ago, we were looking at this team, and it was Garrett Cole, Justin Verlander, Zach Grinke in the top three in the rotation. And Garrett Cole's gone. Justin Verlander, obviously we know what he's been dealing with. Um, and now here we are. What that's? I mean, going back to Garrett Cole, obviously before – uh, a couple of seasons ago. So you're going into now, what, maybe two years later, and it's like going into the 2022 season, Luis Garcia, Christian Javier, Framber Valdez. And you just roll those guys out there, and it's like they haven't lost anything in that rotation. I, I was – I was Al Melchior and I were talking about this rotation a couple of weeks ago, and the one thing I was a tiny bit concerned about with respect to Garcia was – Christian Javier has been so good. And Christian Javier was great while he was in the rotation for this team. And from a pure fantasy perspective, Astros are going to the playoffs. I think we can say that safely. Astros care way more about October than they do about August. 
And would they want to ease off of Luis Garcia's innings? Maybe a little bit. Maybe just a little bit. And maybe they let Christian Javier have some starts. But Javier's having such great success in the role that they have him in. And Garcia's having such great success in the role that they have him in. That I don't know if they would really want to mess with their arms leading into the postseason. I guess that's all a long and drawn out way of saying I don't think... We need to have too many rotation volume-based concerns for Garcia going over the second half. Maybe if they start to pull away in the West, maybe if they uh, can ease things off of them because they know they're going to win the division and just uh, maybe uh, keep him in line, but maybe dial back his innings a little bit. I could see that happening, but... That risk is so minimal and so theoretical that I wouldn't be concerned about it here as we're kicking off the second half of the season. One guy who I am a tiny bit concerned about, not concerned, but just like, why haven't we seen that extra gear from him this season is Lucas Giolito, a guy who I am heavily invested in. And he's been good, right? I mean, Lucas Giolito has been undeniably good this season. But when you spent up to get Lucas Giolito back in March undeniably good was not what you were looking for. He's got a 4.15 ERA, a 1.17 whip. He's striking out close to 30% of the batters he's faced. It just it just hasn't been there, and the StatCast numbers bear this out. They're just not quite where they were in 2019 and in 2020. If you flipped this, if, you, if Lucas Giolito was coming off the same year he was coming off in 2018, and 2021 was 2019, we would be enamored. We would love this season that he is having right here. It's a good season. But because it's coming after what he did in 2019 and 2020, it understandably feels like a little bit of a disappointment. And I think the main reason it feels like that DVR is because it is a little bit of a disappointment. I know he had that one really bad outing in Boston on Patriots Day. It's such a a strange schedule day to work through as a starting pitcher. And look, if you took everybody's worst start away... I don't know if that's a game you actually want to play. It's kind of fun to think about how much better numbers would be. But outside of that blow up, he's pitched well this year, even if it wasn't at the level that we've expected. He's had a home run problem. I would say he compares somewhat favorably to Luis Castillo, just because these guys were both uh, highly ranked for the very first time, making that leap all the way up into the top 10. I guess Giolito, for Mm -hmm. some people, was in that range going to 2020, but I think there was a lot more confidence in that ranking and that position going into 2021. I like Giolito more than Castillo the rest of the way, in part because the park is an easier place to pitch. I think the control is a skill that Giolito has honed at this point. He previously had those double-digit walk rates we talked about with Castillo, so I think that's less of an issue with him. I think that gives me a little more confidence I think the ratios could come in just a tick lower than Castillo's, and the strikeout rates are probably going to be comparable, maybe even favoring Giolito slightly based on what we've seen, even with some of the disappointment this year. Uh, So I I think he ends up maybe offsetting some of the regression going in the other direction from Dylan Cease. Like Dylan Cease has pitched really well this year. I wouldn't be surprised Mm -hmm. if Dylan Cease wasn't quite as good in the second half as he was in the first, but if Giolito was equally like better than he was in the first half. And that basically offsets it for the White Sox rotation as a whole. Yeah. If someone told you that Lucas Giolito was the White Sox fourth best pitcher in the first half of the season, you probably wouldn't have them running away with the AL central the way that they are. But Carlos Rodon has stepped up in a big way. Lance Lynn is just doing Lance Lynn things. Dylan Cease, as you said, having a very nice first half. And then Lucas Giolito, just a little bit worse than we would have expected. But still a guy who I have plenty of confidence in. I'm right there with you, DVR. I think this is a good guy to bet on having a strong second half of the season. And another team that will be interesting to watch in the second half because they are going to run away with this division. And so it'll be interesting to see 
how they manage the roster really once we get into September with Aloy Jimenez and Luis Robert potentially both rejoining this team. Uh, let's talk about an outfielder, right? Luis Robert, Aloy Jimenez, someone who was going right in the same range of them back on draft day was Randy Arozarena, and it's been a weird year. I can speak from the experience of being a Randy Arozarena manager. It's been a strange season for him because it doesn't quite feel as though he's having the successful fantasy season that he is. He's got 10 homers. He's got 11 steals. If you play in an OBP league, you're happy enough with the 333 OBP. If it gets if you play in a batting average league, you're happy enough with the 251 batting average. Obviously, you want more. The 400 slugging percentage, that's really nothing to get excited about, but it's the counting stats. It's the 10 homers, it's the 11 steals, it's the playing every day in Tampa's lineup that's really driving the fantasy value. And so I guess what I'm saying here is that it's been a good fantasy season. It hasn't been a particularly good real-life season for Randy Arozarena, and I'm a tiny bit concerned that the latter is ultimately going to catch up to the former. So, I mean, I think this is a young player, or at least a, a relatively inexperienced player, going through an adjustment phase that most players go through. And this is still pretty tame overall because he's been able to steal bases and, and pop home runs, and the counting stats have been pretty good too. I mean, 251, 333, for a guy that's only 450 plate appearances into his big league career is not bad. He's been 20% better than a league average player to this point in his career with Dylan Carlson and Gavin Lux, we talked about earlier, they have both been below average in terms of WRC+. Carlson in the mid-90s, and I think Lux was in the, the mid-80s. So pretty big differences there. Rosarain is a few years older than those guys, so that's obviously an important factor to consider. There was one mm-hmm. particular metric with Rosarena that caught my eye earlier this season. I was looking at the zone contact laggard board, as I call it, the bottom of the zone contact list. Uh, Javier Baez owns that top spot because Keston Hira doesn't qualify for the list anymore. So usually you see Hira and Baez in their own little tier. Sometimes Hira is like all on his own as the absolute worst (laughs) zone contact percentage hitter in the big leagues. Randy Arozarena is right there at number three, if you include Hira. 73.7% for the zone contact rate. Other guys on this list, just to kind of paint a picture, Joey Gallo, uh, Michael A. Taylor, Matt Chapman, Brandon Lau, Willie Adames, uh, Bryce Harper, Will Myers, Jackie Bradley Jr. There are some good players sprinkled in there, but mm-hmm. they're they're very volatile players. They're guys that have to barrel up the ball a lot. They have to do an extraordinary amount of damage when they connect to offset all the times that they don't. I think the question with Randy Arozarena is, are we trusting that the power we saw down the stretch last season and in the postseason is still within his range or is it the slightly larger body of work is he more of like a seven and a half to eight percent barrel rate guy if he's the latter he's a good player but not necessarily an elite player and because of the speed mm-hmm. he'll continue to be a probably a fourth fifth round consideration for a while right 2020 guys with a 250 average go reasonably early in drafts because he's flashed a higher ceiling than that i guess i'm a little skeptical that the power is elite, elite power. I think it's good power, mm-hmm. not great power. And it's very difficult for hitters who live on this part of the leaderboard to be consistent hitters. Yeah, as you were reading through that list, the first thing that comes to mind is that he's going to need to be, he's he might need to sacrifice a little bit of power for more in-zone contact if he's going to reach his you know best overall player level, best overall most consistent player level. I would maybe want to see him pull a little bit back. Like if you told me we could trade 
even as many as like five homers for more contact and more batting average and more OBP, I think I would take it because we're not suddenly going to maximize power and talk about him as someone who is living in the same range as some of those power hitters you mentioned, Joey Gallo, Bryce Harper. You think about even Javier Baez for that matter, right? I mean, he's a guy who's got 21 homers at the All-Star break, a guy who we've seen have 30 homer seasons in his career. Like, I don't know if that is the sort of player that Randy Arozarena is. So something to keep in mind for the second half and maybe something he goes back to the drawing board on. A guy who is also getting his production in a similar way is Tommy Pham, but I think that this is going to be one of the biggest players in the second half of the season. It was a very, very, very slow start to the year for Tommy Pham, but he turned it around sometime in May. And ultimately, the first half stats look pretty good, basically uh, along the lines of what you would have expected. 254 batting average, 367 OBP, a 406 slugging percentage, nine homers, 12 steals, and 338 plate appearances. You love the homer-steal combo. You love the fact that he hits atop this Padres lineup, so the runs are going to be there. That's always going to be there for him. But something else jumps out at me, DVR, when I look at Tommy Pham and I look at the X stats. A 473 X slug, a 371 X Woba. That X slug nearly 70 points higher than his actual slug. The X Woba about 25 points higher than his actual Woba. So even as he was having this dreadful start to this, Tommy Pham was hitting like 180 deep into May. And even as he was having this horrible start to the season, he was racking up these numbers that suggested you're racking up these actual like batted ball events that suggested he should be doing much better on the bottom line. We start started to see that come through for him over the last couple of months of the first half. And I just think that he is going to have a monster, monster second half this year. Yeah, I can definitely see it. I think he's actually a similar profile to a Rosarena in terms of the roto contributions you're expecting, but he's got better plate skills and a better barrel rate. So in a strange way, even though Rosarena was being drafted a few rounds earlier than Fam back in March, if you gave me the choice of who I'd rather have in my roster for the rest of the season, I might actually take Fam. I think it's very close, uh, but I think mm-hmm. I, I trust Fam's track record, his ability to draw a few more walks, his ability to keep the Ks down, his ability to do that extra damage. I trust that is a little bit more sustainable. I, I don't think playing time is an issue for either one of these guys unless they get hurt. No I think they're both fixtures in their respective lineups, but... I think that's a long way of saying Tommy Pham may have been slightly underrated to begin the season, and any doubts you had about him through April have been kind of quietly erased over the last uh, couple of months. I feel like Tommy Pham's always a little bit underrated. Not, not dramatically underrated, but he always seems to go like around later than he probably should, and wouldn't be a surprise to turn up and see him be... Uh, 20 homers is probably going to be a little bit of a stretch, but he could easily be like a 16 homer, 24, 25 steal sort of player when it's all said and done this season, doing it atop the San Diego lineup where he's going to be in scoring a ton of runs. I want to blow right through to our next guy because I've got one more. I want one more guy I want to talk about and then one more sort of little fun thing to wrap up the show. Eduardo Rodriguez is another guy who the X stats really, really like, and it's it's an ugly bottom line. For Eduardo Rodriguez so far this season, a 5.52 ERA, a 1.37 whip. That just screams yikes, right? Just not been a good first half in the bottom line rates for Eduardo Rodriguez. His XERA DVR, two full runs lower, down at 3.51. He's got a, uh, uh, the bad X projects him for a rest of season ERA in the low fours, and that's basically in line with where the rest of the projection systems are. A 27% K rate, he's not walking anyone, a walk rate down at 5.5%. This is another guy. I think this is one of the prime pitching trade candidates. No one in fantasy leagues ever wants to trade pitching. 
Eduardo Rodriguez is a guy who is still widely rostered, who I think you could go and make a relatively easy trade for because the bottom line numbers have been bad, but the underlying numbers suggest there are better things in store for him in the second half. Yeah, I mean, I think with Eduardo Rodriguez, we've seen this before. We've seen a guy that has flashed what looks like, I would say maybe is an SP2 ceiling, and a lot of times Mm -hmm. you get SP4, SP5 inconsistency. And that's always been frustrating. Uh, I think it's interesting that his arsenal, it doesn't grade out well according to the stuff plus metrics. He's got a bad fastball that he throws more than any other pitch. And when guys have that as a problem, it's correctable if the team agrees that it's a problem. If the team wants to push Mm -hmm. the use of the changeup and push the use of the slider, those are better pitches for him. I think the problem with the changeup being the best pitch is that the fastball is not good and not used enough, the changeup becomes less effective, right? So you just got right. this this way these pitches have to work off of each other that is a, a limiting factor. But I'm still somewhat optimistic. The command is not bad. The team is obviously very good. And I keep saying this, the Red Sox A bullpen, at least, even if they don't have the deepest bullpen in the American League, the quality of the relievers they can throw out there to bridge the gap from the sixth inning until the end of the game when a guy like Rodriguez goes five and fly is actually really good. So I'm pretty encouraged. I think he is on that short list of pitchers you can actually trade for. I guess the question is, just how good do you expect him to be? I'm not buying the XERA. I think there's a, a legitimate home run problem for him. I mean, for a lefty yeah. in Fenway, that's a Agreed. tough place to pitch. He's always given up home <laughs> runs. But I think... A four ERA the rest of the way. The projection systems all seem to think that's reasonable. Uh, an, an upper 120s whip uh, strikeout per inning, if that's what we're looking for, and that plays pretty well in a lot of leagues, especially with offense. We know offense peaks in August, right? So ratios for mm-hmm. pitchers are not going to be what they were at the beginning of the season, even prior to the sticky stuff substance crackdown. I'm in on Rodriguez as a buy low candidate, but I think my previous expectations that he could be an SP2 have finally been erased. I think he's a mid-pack sort of starter, but he's on an above-average team, so that makes him play up mm-hmm. a bit right now. Yep. Uh, yeah, I, I sound, my voice probably sounded a little bit more bullish optimistic on him than I actually am. I think that's really the sweet spot for Eduardo Rodriguez and just a really nice buy-low candidate. And again, it's hard to find. That's what has me most excited about him. Is it's just it's this time of year, people are pretty set with where their teams are. They know exactly what they need, what they want, what they're not going to be willing to give up. And it's just it's hard to find players who could be legitimate pitching improvements that aren't going to cost you an arm and a leg. And Eduardo Rodriguez is one of the few guys I think who threads that needle. So he's someone who I will definitely be checking out the managers in my league, see who's got him, and see if a, a, a some sort of trade can be made. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic.
As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. Um, all right, DVR, one more thing before we get going. I didn't tell you about this. I wanted to spring this on you. I wanted it to be a little bit of a surprise. I wanted to do something a little fun to wrap up the show and get us going into the second half, put a bow on the fact that we're really thinking about the second half here. I have sitting in front of me the projections. From the Bad X for WOBA, rest of season, top 20. I'm going to give you one minute. I've got a timer here. How many in the top 20 can you get in a minute? How many do you think? Oh, probably at least eight. (laughs) Oh, you're going to do better than eight. Come on, DVR. You're going to do better than eight. Top 20, ROS, WOBA predictions, WOBA projections from the Bad X. Here we go in three, two, one, go. Trout. Soto, yes, Vlad Jr. Yes. Uh, That's three. Nick Castellanos, four. Jesse Winker, that is five. Aaron yes. Judge, Aaron Judge is on there. That's six. Shohei Otani, seven. Is Trey Turner on there? Uh, Trey Turner is not. No. How about Mookie Betts? Yes, eight. <sighs> Christian Yelich still in there? Christian Yelich is nine. Thank Already you. beat what you said you were going to get. Uh Justin Turner. 10. Cody Bellinger. No. Bryce Harper. Yes, 11. Oh, man. It's hard to be on the spot with these. (laughs) That was the point. J.D. Martinez. (laughs) 12. Look at this. Raphael Devers. Surprisingly, no. Hmm, That one's a little bit, yeah, definitely a surprise. Just missed. I'm missing obvious ones. Three seconds. Uh, I mean, Acuna would have been on there, but Tatis. Yep. Oh, man. Tatis has to be on there, right? Tatis, yes. Yeah, we'll I, give I, you that. Yeah, I threw, I threw him in before the, the thing buzzed. I, I figured Acuna would have been, even though he was hurt, but maybe they got him off the uh-huh. list. So. You, you got 13. You got 13 out of 20. That's pretty darn good. Uh, the ones you missed, Freddie Freeman, right? You didn't say him. Freddie Freeman, yep. So he, Freddie Freeman, Max Muncy. Yep, that's a good one. George Springer. Oh, yeah. That system loves him. Yep, yep. Jose Ramirez. I always forget about Jose Ramirez. <laughs> That's for uh, uh, Nelson Cruz. Yep. And then you missed the bottom two. One we can give you a pass on. Aloy Jimenez is 19th on this. It's pretty good. Uh, and then the 20th guy is Joey Gallo. All right. Well, that's not bad. I've only had about a third of my coffee so far today, so I'll, I'll accept that. <laughs> hey, and you... 
Yeah, there you go. You had uh, one third coffee and two thirds right out of the twenty. So that's uh, that's pretty perfect, I would say, right there. And you got you didn't miss any of the obvious ones. Maybe Freddie Freeman. Yeah, Freddie, Fre- Freddie Freeman's pretty all- obvious, and Ramirez, perennial first rounder <laughs> yeah. or early rounder. That should have got him too. So on the spot, I think that's a pretty good performance, DVR, and a great way to wrap up this episode of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast. To those of you who joined us on YouTube, thank you very much. Those of you listening on the podcast, thank you as well. Those of you who aren't yet Athletic subscribers, you can still get in the door for just $3.99 a month at theathletic.com slash fantasybaseballpodcast. And hey, if you're a fantasy baseball fan, perhaps you are a fantasy football fan as well. Our draft kit going live Today, Wednesday, July 14th, so check that out. We've got a ton of awesome stuff in there for you. DVR and I are back with you over the weekend for our waiver show. DVR pulling double duty, about to be recording an episode of Under the Radar with Nando DeFino and Ian Khan, so look for that one later today. So we got two episodes of the Athletic Fantasy Baseball Podcast for you on this day. Thanks so much for joining us. We'll talk to you all soon. 